we are going to, I'll start off with questions from this morning. Again, um, as, as our new sort of trying to be a bit more focused, I'm going to ask that you try to keep it to what we talked about this morning, maybe what we talked about last week, but try to keep it focused. And then, if we have time, and I believe we will, I have some more Messianic texts to go over. And, and again, this is still cherry-picking. Um, this is still just the, the tip of the iceberg. But some of the most significant... It's my hope that what you can walk away from this morning are at least some key passages, um, key critical key passages to uh, undergird that the Messiah, Jesus, was predicted in the Old Testament. Um, uh, recently, uh, I think we mentioned this last week, MacArthur was on Shapiro's program, and Shapiro's a practicing Jew, and he made this great quote that I love. He said, I couldn't, I couldn't believe in the New Testament without the Old Testament. I couldn't believe in Jesus without the Old Testament, without the prophecies and predictions. And so I'm always encouraged to see just how clearly those things are predicted. Um, okay, so with that said, thoughts or questions? Oh, Corey. So uh, Melchizedek, do you think he was, uh, was he a real person or was he a type of Christ? Okay, yeah. great question. The question um, comes from the author of Hebrews' description of Melchizedek, the, this, the, where, where some get the idea that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ, or to use the technical language, a Christophany, um, is from Hebrews. I believe it's, it's Hebrews talks about it twice, so let me check Hebrews 7, I want to say. Maybe 5, but I think it's Hebrews 7, talking about Melchizedek. Um, and the phrase used by um, the author of Hebrews is verse 3. So I'll just pick it up in verse 1. Hebrews 7, 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God, the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and, pressed, and blessed him. To him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, which is what Melech Zedak means. Um, Zedak, my son's name Zadok, comes from that root. It means righteous. Melech means king. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness. He is first, um, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is the king of Salem, or Shalom, peace. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was who Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So based on the author of Hebrews' description of him, some have suggested um, that Melchizedek is a Christophany. It's possible. I, wouldn't, I couldn't say he's not. I tend to think um, D.A. Carson, if you want to look it up, has an excellent, excellent sermon on... Hebrews citation of Psalm 110, which is ultimately citing Genesis 14. It's a great message synthesizing Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews. And his point is that in the book of Genesis, what he takes without genealogy beginning or end to mean is that in Genesis, whenever anyone of any substance is introduced, we get their genealogy. We get who their father was. We get what their beginning and end of days was. Melchizedek, who's such a great figure that Abraham tithes to him, shows up with no genealogy, with no birth and end of days, and the text goes on. So depending on whether or not you think the author of Hebrews is referencing the text of Genesis such that Melchizedek shows up without any of the stuff you'd expect a great man to have in the text, 
or if you think he means literally he is without beginning, he's without father, he's without end of days, then you'll either end up thinking Melchizedek was pre-incarnate Christ or a man. I tend to lean towards he was just a king, a priest, a guy. But good men disagree, and it really is going to come down to how you take Hebrews 7.3. Um, so good, good question, but yeah, I, I think you could go both ways with Hebrews 7.3. But nothing in the Genesis account would make me think it's pre-incarnate Christ. It really hinges on Hebrews 7, 3. Um, okay, other questions? Okay. Okay. Um, in Hebrews, in the beginning of Hebrews, where Moses was sent the, the message to his people in the New Testament, and that was where he was saved, was in a, in a cradle, and as in in Egypt, and he come back in the book of Hebrews. Was that a question, Lucas? Or? Oh, okay. I'm, can we talk about that afterwards? I want to just focus. I know it's Hebrews. We're just in Hebrews, but we'll talk about it later. I want to focus on just where we we're coming from in this morning in, in the Old Testament. Uh, by the way, I'll make a... I'll, Daniel into the bus to talk to Daniel. I said, how'd you think things? It was nice, but it wasn't very Christmassy. If, but I'll tell you this. If we'd done the next passage in Luke, it would have been a downer because we're going to deal with the, the road to Emmaus in two weeks. And the first week is really focusing on these guys with all the evidence they have, their unbelief. They've got the testimony of the woman. They've got the empty tomb. They've got it all. And we had hoped that he was, and I thought, man, that would be kind of a bummer to do on December 23rd. So since we would have done this study eventually, I just did it first. So, okay. Merry Christmas. Um, um, did, um, other, other questions from, from what we looked at this morning? Or do we want to jump to the handout? Handout? Let's go to the handout. Okay. And I used the metaphor this morning of, of a river and tributaries, and I think that's a, a helpful way to look at things, because the Bible has all these threads. Um, there are a number of threads throughout the Bible that sort of get developed, and, um, and they start joining together. And, and again, we saw in Hebrew, yeah, if, I got more, Jonah, you want to just grab the stack, and if you need a handout, you didn't get a handout, uh, Jonah can give it to you. And before we even go to the handout, I want to recommend two books to you. Uh, if this is something that interests you, and it should. Walt Kaiser has a book titled The Messiah in the Old Testament, where he just goes text by text through um, Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. It's excellent. My old Greek professor, William Varner, um, has a book, The Messiah, Revealed, Rejected, and Received, both of these are excellent, quite readable, um, and I, I was benefiting, benef- benefiting, benefiting. I started to say beneficiary, and then I somehow went to benefiting. Um, hi, Mom. Uh, and and uh, I benefited greatly from them in my study this week, so I, uh, I, would, I would commend them to you. So we're, we're cherry-picking. Part of what... What I'm trying to focus on is this development. The Bible was written sequentially, and that's important to bear in mind. And there's two approaches, at least, well, there's more than two. There's two main approaches to studying things in the Bible. One is um, systematic, systematic theology. 
and, and, the, and the other is a biblical theology, and they're both good, they're both helpful. But the big distinction is chronology. So systematic theology will ask atemporal questions. What I mean by that is simply, what does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about Messiah? What does the Bible say about God? And then everything in the Bible's fair game. That is a helpful way of coming at study. The primary help that does is it forces you to look at all the texts to make sure you're not contradicting with what you think this text over here means, what this text over here says. So it's a good check against conflict because you're harmonizing, you're looking at everything. But when you do biblical theology, you're keeping in focus the, the movement, okay? Um, what comes first? So you might look at things a little differently. You might say, okay, how does, um, how does the book of Exodus develop God's promise of a coming seed first given in Genesis? What does Exodus add to that? And you're looking at chronology. And that is another really helpful way to look at things. Turn, turn to Romans 4. Biblical authors make this type of argument that the chronology, the ordering of things is important. The Apostle Paul is going to argue for justification by faith alone apart from works of the law based on the simple fact that Genesis 12 occurs before Genesis 17. Imagine that. Um, That's his entirety of his argument. The author of Hebrews makes a similar argument from Psalm 95 about the today, but I'll just show you one example. In, in Romans 4, um, let me get there. In Romans 4, <clears throat> we read verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, he's already referenced that. Genesis fifteen six in verse 3, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So in Genesis 15, 6, we get Abraham believed God is credited to him as righteousness. Circumcision doesn't show up until Genesis 17. Verse 10 then. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. So the entire argument Paul makes hinges on the chronology, the ordering of events, okay? And so that's partly why I tried to focus so much on the Pentateuch, because in the Pentateuch, we know, strictly speaking, the ordering. Once you get into the Psalms, it's hard to figure out which Psalm is written first, which Psalm is written later, so it's harder to know, okay, does Psalm uh, 22 come before Isaiah 53? Because they both reference pierced. Who's referencing who? I don't know. I don't know whether the Isaiah prophecy is linking intentionally to Psalm 22 or whether the psalmist in Psalm 22 aware of Isaiah 53, but both of them are talking about pierced, which is a unique theme, which then Zechariah picks up in 12. And we know Zechariah comes nearly last. So we know that's the end of things. But when you're trying to deal with the chronology, it gets trickier with the Psalms, admittedly so. So we skipped over one other big messianic prophecy in uh, the Pentateuch, in the books of Moses, and that is in Numbers 24. So if you can read along in your sheet now, or you can turn there, and this is Balaam. Remember, Balaam is a pagan prophet who somehow is filled with God's spirit and prophesies. He speaks better than he knows, and he's hired by Balak to curse the children of Israel. He can't do it. He's unable to do it. 
Um, and he starts actually prophesying their, their, their victory and their strengthening. And, and in Numbers 24, let me turn there. I want to see the whole passage. In Numbers 24, he um, makes this, this is his final oracle, starting in verse 15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. And the reason I left this out was simply time. And this is yet another one of these coming king, coming ruler, worldwide kingdom type of passages, which we saw a couple of this morning. So I thought if I had to skip something, okay, we could leave this out. But again, it's remarkable that as early as the, t- the days of Moses, these prophecies are coming. It's coming a ruler from Jacob and he is going to rule the nations. It's, it's, that early, right? Um, any, any thoughts on Balaam here? God using this wicked man, and, and he's not a good guy, to yet declare good things for his people. Reminds me of the demoniacs confessing Christ. You know, I know who you are. You're the son of the most high God. Shut up. Stop it. You know, he tells them to be quiet. Balaam, we're good? We're good with Balaam? Let's go to 1 Samuel 2. Hannah. Hannah is the mother of Samuel. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and Mary in the Magnificat seems to model her prayer after Hannah. She's very well, she's clearly very familiar um, with, with Hannah and her prayer. Both of them, are, Hannah and Mary, are uh, celebrating the Lord's uh, upheavals. The, the rich are poor. The, the full are hungry. She who had many sons is begging. She who had none is got seven. I mean, that, this is this reversals theme of God um, coming to the cause of the weak, God coming to the cause of the powerless. And so Hannah, after she cries out to God, she prays, and Eli thinks she's drunk and tells her to stop her babbling. She says, no. She, Eli is rebuked and corrected, and he blesses her and says, may the Lord hear your prayer. And sure enough, um, she's given a son and she promised the child to God if she was given one. And so sure enough, she gives the child to the Lord and she offers this prayer of praise in um, 1 Samuel 2. And again, the timing here is important. Has Israel had a king yet? No, Samuel himself will anoint the first and second king of Israel. No king yet. We're coming out of the period of the judges. So Samuel's the last judge of Israel. No kings, no kings whatsoever. However, the book of Deuteronomy talks about how the people of Israel can, in fact, have a king. And what will happen when they have a king? The king will write a handwritten copy of the law, which will be checked 
by the Levites and the scribes to make sure he did it right. And that he shall read from all the days of his life so that he will not pervert justice. So the Deuteronomy knows of a king, even though Israel has no king yet. And yet look at Hannah's prayer. Verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more, you very proudly. No more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. And those who are hungry have ceased from hunger. The barren has borne seven. And she that has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He sifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. For the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his Messiah, his Messiah. How on earth does Hannah put those things together? This woman has studied and knows her Bible. She knows there's a coming Messiah. She knows the law of Moses promises some sort of kingship. And I'm assuming she knows Jacob saying the scepter will not depart from Judah. So here's Hannah thinking biblically and under the inspiration of the Spirit, unifying. I used to think Psalm 2 was the first place these threads come together. Hannah's ahead of Psalm 2. Hannah, the Lord, will give strength to his king. There is no king yet, but she knows there's going to be a king. Because the scepter is not going to depart from Judah. Deuteronomy tells us what the king's supposed to do when we have one. And she links him with the Messiah. Which is, again, trying to put this stuff is there. And thoughtful people even saw it. Hannah saw it. Put it together. Good for her. Go Hannah. You know? um, so that is, to me, truly remarkable. Any, any questions for Hannah? Thoughts on this? Moving on to Job. And again, Job has some insights that we don't even know. As far as we can tell, Job is a contemporary. No, sorry. The story of Job is contemporary with Abraham. Potentially older still. Possibly the oldest writings in the Old Testament. We simply don't know when when Job lived. Um, But as far as we can tell from the grammar and the Hebrew, it's it's written about the time period that Moses was writing and the events it records seem to be very, very old. And so how Job came to some of the conclusions that Job came to, we don't know. We can just sit back and marvel at the goodness of God that he reveals such things. And if you remember the story of Job, he suffers the loss of his family. He suffers the loss of his wealth. He suffers the loss of his um, health. And he initially suffers very, very well. He says, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then his friends come to comfort him. And for the first seven days, they don't even speak. They just sit with him in the rubbish heap that he's sitting in. 
They don't speak. But eventually they do talk, start talking. And, and what they eventually argue is, Job, God is just. Therefore, if God's done this to you, you must have done something wrong. So, Job, why don't you just do yourself a favor? Confess what you did. And then God will stop disciplining you and he'll bless you. And that's true. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes when people are uh, suffering, it is discipline, right? Um, Paul says that because people in Corinth were not taking the Lord's Supper properly, many were sick, many were dead. And so there are cases when you can look at some calamity, and, and I think you need to ask questions, not come to conclusions, Perhaps could this be something? You know, when when I get sick, when something bad happens to me, one of the first things I want to check: Lord, am I out of line? Because I want to get it over with. You know, if this isn't me being out of line, fair enough. But if it is, I'd like to confess it and deal with it so we can move on. Thank you. Um, so his friends say that, and so what becomes to to press out a Job is this desire for a mediator. He insists that he's innocent. He insists there is no secret, shameful sin in his life. And he is vexed by the fact that God is so great and he is so small that he really has no forum to come to God and ask his questions. He has no forum. He uses the court analogy. And this is where Paul gets his mediator language. A mediator is one who comes between two parties and, and makes peace. He, he bridges the gap, if you will, right? So in Job 9.32, Job in his response complains. He's basically saying, I'm innocent, but I, I got no way of, I, I've got no way of going to court to prove that I'm innocent. I got no way of calling upon a judge to make a judgment to say that I'm innocent. Um, and so he says in 9.32 uh, and 33, He is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. It's remarkable. Because Jesus being fully God and fully human, I mean, I'm not suggesting that Job is aware that there will be a divine human Messiah coming. Um... But he certainly recognizes the, the, this impossibility. How can I, a frail, sinful man, come before the living God and not be consumed? The, the, in our modern day of self-esteem, plenty of people think, oh no, God would be lucky to have me show up. But that's not the approach the Bible assumes. The Bible assumes we come at it like, God is so great and I am so small. He is so holy and I am not. Uh, woe unto me if I come before him. And so he's expressing this need of an arbiter, this need of a go-between, which is perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he gets even more specific. If we turn to Job 19, and this is where I have no idea how Job knew this. I have absolutely no idea how Job knew this, um, other than God must have revealed it to him, or in the spirit of the Lord being upon him, he just spoke better than he knew. But he, Job is aware of the resurrection, the physical resurrection. Um, Verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God. 
Get that. Job says, I, my body is going to rot and be destroyed. And yet not in my spirit, not my soul going off to heaven. In my flesh, I shall see God and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. No idea how Job knew that. <sighs> not a clue. It's absolutely remarkable. Um, and he knows his redeemer lives. So you put those things together. Job says, I need an advocate. I need someone who can bridge this gap between God and man. And whether or not even Job knows this redeemer he speaks of in 19 is that same arbiter. He's aware he needs a redeemer and he has a redeemer and his redeemer lives. And that in the resurrection, Job will see his redeemer. And in the resurrection, Job with his eyes will see the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so there's more hints in the book of Job. Okay, questions from Job or anything else? Anybody just moving along this sheet? Okay. Any questions on Job? I, I find this absolutely remarkable because I, his, the clarity is, is so remarkable of Job. And Job's backstory, just, we have no idea. No clue. Okay. I went backward to order. I went Job, then Hannah. Okay, Hannah. Okay, now we come to the Psalms, and there are just scads of text in the Psalms. Absolute scads of text. And what's trickier with the Psalms is, because the David's greater son is going to fulfill many of the events and the experiences in the life of David, there are parts of Psalms that become messianic when clearly the entire Psalm itself is not messianic. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, what is the psalm that gets quoted in John 2? Zeal for your house has consumed me. Where is that? That's psalm... Where is that? That is 69. But let's go to Psalm 69. Okay. Psalm 69. Oh, that's 59, sorry. Hold on. <laughs> 69. Save me, O God. Well, first of all, of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. There is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. So based on verse 5, this psalm cannot strictly be messianic. Meaning, we cannot say everything that Psalm 69 speaks about is speaking about the Messiah, or you've got a sinful Messiah. Right? Verse 5. However, keep reading, let those who hope in you, um, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, and it goes on. So then how, if you go to John 2, 
And this is, this is one of the big, trickier issues in the Bible, is trying to understand, sometimes the prophecies are absolutely direct, and, and largely what I settled on this morning to highlight are clearly Jesus-only prophecies. Psalm 2 is not about David at all. Psalm 2 is about Jesus. Psalm 2 is about this coming king with a worldwide rule and a rod of iron dashing the nations like a potter's vessel. David is not in there. Okay? Um, Isaiah 53, just about the coming servant. Isaiah, Psalm 22, maybe David's undergoing some suffering, but certainly David isn't pierced. So unless David's sort of extrapolating his own suffering. It looks purely messianic. But then you get to things like Psalm 69 that you can't say this is a purely messianic psalm. You can't say this is a song about the Messiah only. So then it's about David in the first instance. And yet, go to John 2. The disciples apply it to Jesus. If you remember um, when Jesus... um, goes to the temple in John 2. And he cleanses the temple. John 2, 13. The pastor of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what are they doing? I mean, and some people have said, well, the disciples simply proof text. They took, ripped things out of context. They strung up a bunch of proof text to prove their point. Um, and so sometimes I think, I think the answer here is pretty straightforward. Jesus is David's son. He's David's greater son, but he's David's son. And just as the earlier Davidic king is consumed with zeal for God's house and God's name, so too would we be at all surprised to find David's greater son is likewise filled with zeal and passion for God's house. You see, it's a slightly different prophetic aspect. It's it's a slightly different type of fulfillment. So David is anointed king and yet runs around not actually ruling his kingdom. He's ruling his followers. David's got a growing group of followers. But Saul, even though he's deposed as king, is still functioning as king for years and years after David's anointed king. Likewise, is it not, should not be surprising that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus has been inaugurated and anointed king of kings and lord of lords, and to his growing band of followers, he is that. But yet, at the same time, the god of this world roars around like a lion seeking whom he will destroy. Interesting how those things line up, right? Um, So sometimes, Jesus is fulfilling as it is, the similar events in David's life. And, and so we'd expect the attitudes of passion and, and, and love for God that David expresses would likewise be expressed in the Messiah. So that's a different type of fulfillment. It's not that Psalm 69 is predicting that, but it's showing us the passion that David, the Davidic king, has for God's name and God's house. And hey, guess what? The Messiah shows that same passion. That's fitting. So there's different types of prophecy fulfillment. The, the prophecy in Hosea, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Well, when you read it in Hosea, it's talking about Israel coming out of Egypt. What do you do there? And again, people go, I don't know. It's, again, the similar fashion, fitting 
for Jesus and the events in Israel's history to be replicated in Jesus' life. Israel goes out in the wilderness and is tested and fails. They want food and they grumble, right? Jesus goes out in the wilderness and he only quotes the books of Moses in his defense against Satan. He doesn't use any helps Israel didn't have when they are in the wilderness. And he doesn't grumble when he's hungry. And he passes the test. So Jesus is, in one sense, true Israel. He's, he is the seed of Abraham. And so we find some of those prophecies apl- applying to him. So those are different types of prophetic application. Because you read Hosea and you don't implicitly think, oh, this is predicting the Messiah. Rather, the Israel, God's seed comes into existence as God's son and as a nation, as, they are ex- as their exodus from Egypt. That's when they are birthed, if you will. And likewise, Jesus goes down into Egypt and comes up, and as he follows in the steps of his people, he goes through many of the similar events. Um, so that's one of the things that can be tricky because the New Testament will cite the Old Testament in ways that are difficult to explain at times. So that's a long introduction to say, well, you got to be careful for two dangers, you know, there's exegesis. We do expository preaching here, which means to draw the meaning out of the text. There's eisegesis, which is reading the meaning into the text. That's bad. But then there's what some people do, which is I see Jesus, and that's seeing Jesus behind everything. And the pure, I love the Puritans, or at least I love the good Puritans when I read. But man, they see Jesus everywhere. So you read the Puritans, and you read like Matthew Henry's commentary and the red cord that Rahab sent down the wall of of Jericho. That's that's red for the blood of Jesus. And, you know, they start seeing Jesus everywhere. And you want to be careful of that. And yet, clearly, Jesus makes it clear that the Old Testament is ultimately about him. And and we'll deal with that probably in two weeks when we get to Luke, when he says, these things are written about me. Um, and, and dealing with that. So one of the things as you work through these issues is trying to figure out the different ways that texts can speak of Jesus. Some Psalms are explicitly messianic and others are revealing the attitudes of David and then we would expect the greater David to have those same attitudes. So with that, as by way of introduction, let's uh, take a look at Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Okay. It's right next to the longest chapter in the Bible. And we've looked at Psalm 118, but this is a psalm that, that Jesus liked to reference concerning himself. And when we studied this, we talked about how it's, uh, it's got antithonal praise. Is Dan here? Here's Dan here? Dan Barth? No? Okay. I thought Dan. Well, tell Dan we said antithonal praise. I'm disappointed that he's not here. It, well, no, because some of the, like, you've seen these things in what, the higher church services where, um, well, there's even antithonal readings. You'll see this in the, in the Anglican church. Um, and so the, the priest, we're all priests, but the, the speaker will say something and then the congregation speaks back or you, whatever. But that comes out of patterns in the Bible. It's not just, you know, dead legalism. I mean, like everything, it can be corrupted. But right here, we've got antithonal praise. So, oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, 
It said, and you can just picture in this song, like the different groups in the, the throng of the multitude saying, you know, everybody on this side say, everybody, I mean, that, that would be sort of a modern equivalent, which I'm not, Kingery, hold on, give me one, give me one second, get a mic to the Kingery, and as soon as I stop yammering, he can say something, but, but um, so it starts off with antithonal praise, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love forever, and then out of this, out of this um, group praise, a single voice arises describing a particular and individual deliverance. So whereas you've got the tribes of Israel and you've got the house of Aaron and those who fear the Lord saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, a singular voice comes out from amongst the, the, the choir of the people and, de- and declares God giving him a victory, a military victory. And so it seems as though we've got some Davidic king here speaking. Okay, I'll pause. Dave. Yes, sir. Oh, I was just going to say that, um, could you say, say something about the prophecies of Jesus that were before Jesus and before Christians, the prophecies of the Messiah were fairly, fairly, I mean, straightforward. We, they knew that even the rabbis recognized those as messianic. But after Jesus... And after the after Christians, the the messianic prophecies suddenly became vague and ambiguous, and something that Christians made up all over the internet. Christians. If if I have time, I will. I'm going to finish. Oh, okay. Psalm Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I want to finish Psalm 18. If I got a minute, I'll be happy to. Oh, you're because you are quite right. You're quite right. That happens. So Psalm 18. I'll, I'll speed up for time's sake. Um, we got six minutes. Okay. And so this voice, out of my distress, I, you got an individual called on the Lord. The Lord answered me, set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And then he starts talking about this military victory. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out forth like fire from among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is echoing, by the way, the song of Moses in Exodus 15. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And now we find this king, this military victor, is leading the people to temple worship. Because he's arrived at the gates of the temple. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So the king arrives. So, so presumably this is moving in worship to the temple. The king, or this military hero at the head, Begins with some antithonal praise. We get to the temple. Open the doors for me. They open. Then we get this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. We're back to plural. So presumably, either the people at the temple or the people with this leader are now speaking about this deliverance, which was an unlikely deliverance. This king, this ruler, this military victor was the underdog, apparently, He didn't appear mighty. He didn't appear great. 
He was the stone the builders rejected. He's become the cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And it's in that context that the shouts of Hosanna that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to show up next. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because the guy's now entered into the temple. Um, We bless you from the house of God. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So he's shown it to the temple to offer a sacrifice. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, in that psalm, that movement, which is important to see, he's leading the people in praise. He's recounting God's victory and deliverance. He arrives at the temple. There's a celebration of his unlikely victory, giving praise to God. And then he says, okay, it's time to make a sacrifice. Jesus, the stone who the builders rejected, shows up to Jerusalem, leading the people to praises of Hosanna, save now. He goes directly to the temple, cleanses it, Right? And ultimately, in Jerusalem, in that Passion Week, will offer himself up as a sacrifice to God. Not readily apparent. So this is one of those prophecies that's not, you look at it like, oh, that's prophetic. But then it happens, you're like, oh, wow. Um, so to get to Dave's point, and I'll, and I'll end here. Not all Old Testament prophecies are of equal strength. Um, what, I, what I mean by that is, the prophecies like zeal for your house has consumed me. You read Psalm um, 69, and you do not immediately think, oh, this is talking about someone else. In the first instance we saw, Psalm 69 is indeed talking about David. Um, So that type of prophecy is a um, typological fulfillment, that the events of David's life, his attitudes, his passions, are similar to and exemplified in the Messiah. There are other prophecies, mainly the ones we looked at this morning, which were much more overt undeniably messianic. There's no way on earth Psalm 2 is talking about David. There's no way on earth Isaiah 53 is talking about something that's happened. And as Dave points out, prior to Jesus' advent, they were understood as messianic. Um, From what we can tell of the older rabbinic Talmuds and, and writings, they understood them as messianic. It's only after Jesus that the rabbis begin to reinterpret them away from a messianic meaning. So now I think the most common Jewish understanding of Isaiah 53 is it's speaking about the sufferings of the people of Israel. You can see how that plays, right? You know, we've gone through the Holocaust. We've gone through all of this. The serpent, God's servant, that bears this constant beating and bruising is the people of Israel. But that's an entirely new interpretation after Jesus showed up. And as far as we can tell, no rabbis thought that before Jesus. In other words, it seems a clear reaction to, well, it can't be Jesus, and we don't want to make it look like it even is close to Jesus. So there's a lot of that that's evident, Um, which, which again gets to the point that there is no honest misunderstanding here, that the Jews have not made an honest mistake. Nobody who reads the text and rejects it has made an honest mistake. Jesus is emphatic. If you believed Moses and the prophets, you would believe me. If you don't accept Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. Which is exactly what we see Jesus' disciples wrestling with after he's risen from the dead. 
See, the big thing I missed, and I'll make a point of this next week. I'll close with this. Remember two weeks ago when I was talking about how I was wrestling with, I was expecting in Luke the resurrection to just be, ta-da! You know? And it's not. It's, it's he, the women show up and he's not there. Now, there's angels. That's exciting. But then they go tell the disciples and they don't believe them. And then these guys go on the road and Jesus shows up, but he's incognito in secret. And they have all this evidence and they still don't believe And then Jesus shows up to the apostles in person, and some still doubt. And then it hit me, the common, like, what what I'm trying to think about is this. Why does God do it this way? Why, if Jesus will ultimately stand in their midst and be touched and prodded and verified, why not just start there? Why not just, boom, right the morning of the resurrection, boom, he just shows up and he proves it. Why have the women meet an angel? Why have Jesus walk with some guys on the road to Emmaus? Why do all that? Here's what I think the answer is. In every instance, what they're pointed to is the revelation of God. So the angels tell the women, remember what he said. Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Remember what Moses and the prophets said. And in response to them doubting when he stood in their midst in Luke 24, he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. I think the reason is ultimately Jesus and God the Father want their belief in the resurrection not to finally be rested upon their experience, but upon the word of God, which is exactly how the apostles reason and argue for the resurrection in Acts. Sure, they'll reference their witnesses, but they don't do what we do. I witnessed it, and Philip witnessed it, and um, James, can you come over here and tell everyone what you saw too? And look, there's at least 11 of us, guys. Believe us. No, again and again, Peter, first sermon, just as it was prophesied, he argues from the Old Testament, and Paul argues from the Old Testament. Yes, they were witnesses, but their final proof of the resurrection is the word of God, not their experience. I think that's remarkable that that sort of, that remember what he said, remember what the prophet said. He opens their mind to understand the scriptures and then their fundamental argument is not, we saw it, so believe us. They will say that. We are witnesses, no doubt. But it's constantly pointing to the Old Testament text. Okay. Have a merry, merry Christmas. I hope to see um, you here Christmas Eve uh, tomorrow night. God bless, God speed. See you all next week. Thank you.